This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the July episode of TSC Now. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. This episode will be part two of our discussion about managing harmful and disruptive behaviors during COVID-19. Then later in the episode, I talk to Rob Moss and Gabrielle Rushing about an exciting new partnership between Seizure Tracker and the TS Alliance, and they share how you can get involved in moving TSC research forward. But first, I talk to Dr. Tanjala Gibson, TAND Unit Director at Labonar Children's Hospital. Dr. Gibson shares some very practical tips on how parents and caregivers can manage their children's behavior at home during the pandemic. She also took time to answer questions from you about common issues related to TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, otherwise known as TAND, including sleeplessness and emotional outbursts. Here's my conversation with Dr. Gibson. So we're now joined by Dr. Tanjala Gibson, who is the director of the TAND Clinic at Labonar Children's Hospital. Dr. Gibson, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. It's my absolute, one of my absolute favorite things to do. As I'm sure you're aware, these are very unprecedented times, you know, with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of parents and families affected by TSC have been stuck at home, have been unable to do things that they used to do. And we've heard, at least anecdotally, that there's been an increase in behaviors from families who have kids with TSC. I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about sort of what are the factors that may be leading to this increase in behaviors? Yeah, so, and and that's a really great question. And I've been hearing a lot from the families that I have the privilege to serve in, in clinic, and even some that I've talked to during some webinars. And I think some of the factors that are, are leading to some increased behaviors is, is number one is uncertainty. A lot of our children who have a tendency to develop behaviors, their routines, their schedules, they find very soothing. And to not be sure if they're going to school or not, if mom and dad are going to work or not, or what to expect. So I think that's one is the uncertainty. Number two, I think, is just increased environmental stress. So as parents, we do our best, but we, we're human. And so a lot of us are stressed too. And children can feel, they say, you know, it's, it's said that anxiety is, is like the only contagious emotion. So they can feel our anxiety and sometimes become anxious and act out that anxiety with behaviors. So uncertainty, environmental stress. And another one too is we're, we're all doing our best. And so we're trying to adapt. But I think one thing that is causing some of the families that I see or the the children some stress is the idea of trying to do school from home. So many of them view school as school and home as home. And their teacher is the teacher they see at school and mom and dad are mom and dad. And now mom and dad are being asked to be teachers and the computer is supposed to be the classroom. And they're like, "Uh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) <laughs> so uncertainty, environmental stress, doing things differently, this idea of school at home so they don't necessarily get a break. They're in close quarters with other people. So sometimes they may not feel like they have their their own space. So those are just some. And then, well, another one, too, is just hearing all of the COVID-19 news all the time. 
So for some of my kids who are watching the news or, or reading about this, you know, it's pretty scary. And so hearing that can cause some anxiety and cause some, some behaviors as well. So now that we've been living in this reality for a couple of months, what have you learned and how are you adapting your services to meet this greater need? So one of the things that I've learned is we have to be able to meet the need in whatever way we can. And that's really always been my motto is figuring out, like sometimes people will say, well, you can't do this for this person. They're too old or they live too far. And I'm always just trying to figure out, well, that may be a fact, But what can we do about it? Because they need help. So the biggest change we've made is that we've opened up our telehealth. And I'm so pleased with that because there are some families who can't travel to our clinic. And so our our hospital administration is working overtime and getting us licensed in different states. Many states are allowing us to have temporary licenses and we're able to serve families across the U.S., as well as internationally, too, using telehealth. You know, telehealth is one of those things that has sort of come out of all this expanded use of telehealth. And for many people, that's been a lifeline to Mm -hmm. continue to to have access to behavioral intervention specialists and doctors. And that's been great. But, you know, for some families, maybe telehealth isn't necessarily either helping the situation or the answer that they need. When does it make sense to actually go to a clinic and how should parents weigh the risk of infection versus, you know, continued regression or not dealing with either self-harm or injurious behaviors? Absolutely. So, and that is such a great question. If a family truly feels that they're not being served by telehealth and they feel like things are getting worse. And definitely, definitely, if they feel like their loved one is a serious risk to themselves or to others, they should seek an in-person evaluation, most definitely. And as far as weighing the risk of infection, I will say that all hospitals, you know, I can definitely speak personally for our hospital, are taking precautions in that there are specific screenings before people can get in. There's limited visitation, there's sanitation procedures, and people are wearing masks and and doing distancing. I know at our hospital, we're now adding face shields as well. It's an extra level of protection. And so if they're not sure, you know, what protections are in place, I would suggest calling in ags and just see, you know, what's going on, what can be done. I know for our families, there are certain families who would rather not wait in the waiting area. And so those families can come directly to the back and then we do all the front desk stuff later. So they can kind of chart their course before they come. and and just make sure they feel comfortable. So I know when talking about behaviors in TSC, a lot of intervention is individualized for that child. And that's kind of the importance of the TAN checklist is to really hone in on what the issues are and how to best meet those issues. But we did reach out to some community members to get some questions about some of the behaviors they're having. And I was wondering if I could throw a couple at you and just what would be the first step in starting to address that behavior? Is that okay? Yeah, that's perfectly fine. One family talked about how since the start of the pandemic, there's been a lot of restlessness and interruption to sleep. How would you recommend dealing with sleep issues related to anxiety and the pandemic? So when it comes to sleep issues, sleep is so vitally important to our daily function, all of us, but especially to our our individuals and loved ones who may have a tendency towards having behaviors. The first thing is to make sure that all medical causes of disruptive sleep are are ruled out. Looking to see if, if the loved one seems like if they stop breathing when they're sleeping, if there's loud snoring, if there's any reason 
that they might need a sleep study. So a good first step might be just talking with their primary care provider about overall health. So GI stuff, dental stuff. So making sure all those medical things are are out of the way. Then the second thing that's important is what is that sleep routine like? So what are we doing right before bed and trying to have the same soothing routine every night? And so that requires knowing what that individual likes. So maybe for some people, it's a warm bath and music. For others, maybe it's a little bit of yoga. Definitely getting rid of the screens at least an hour or two before bedtime. You know, maybe it's parent time, reading time. So figuring out what are the things that your loved one enjoys doing that would be soothing and starting to do those things every night the same time. So we talked about medical, we talked about soothing routines. Another thing to think about too is for some individuals and especially individuals that I take care of who suffer with anxiety, a lot of times what they'll tell me is that their thoughts won't let them rest. So they have a lot of repetitive thoughts. And so for people that are struggling with that, one thing that I recommend is journaling. So whatever it is that's on your mind, just kind of write it all out. Think, you know, whatever it is that you're thinking, things you want to do, write it all out, put it next to the bed. And then now at least it's in a notebook. You don't have to keep it in your head. It's, It's in your notebook. And then regular environmental things, making sure the temperature is good. For some people, they sleep warm. Some people sleep cool. Others might find a weighted blanket helpful. And those are commercially available. Making sure the room is decluttered. I didn't realize what a big deal that is. But that's a big deal, too, as far as like what your sleep environment is like. And then after all those things are considered, and let's say someone says, you know, Dr. Gibbs, I've done all that. I've checked all that off my list. Sometimes medication might be helpful for sleep. But it's not typically my first choice. It's always a choice of last resort after we've kind of checked off all of these medical and non-med things. So here's another question that we got. How do you transition from a preferred activity to a non-preferred activity? So you mentioned that, you know, kids are used to home being home and school being school. And with homeschooling, parents are are having to do more and more of getting their kids to engage in that schoolwork. What are some strategies to help when kids don't want to be doing schoolwork at home? Absolutely. I think, and this is kind of the opposite of what I would have recommended pre-COVID, but now that we're in this pandemic, I think the first step is to relax some of the expectations. There's a lot going on. We're all doing our best. But for many families, now for some, it may be entirely practical to do eight hours of school. But for many families, it's not practical. So if you, if your child can tolerate a solid one hour, two hours, 30 minutes, decide what they can tolerate and then kind of gently work up. But I wouldn't necessarily beat yourselves up if you feel like you can't do an academic day while you're still working full time and the dog is running and the dinner's cooking. Sometimes it might be a little bit much. So I would say, Relax expectations, start small, and reward the effort. If your child does zero schoolwork and they do five minutes, my thought is make that a celebration. They did five minutes. Reward them for that. And then the next day, maybe you can work up to 10. So another common theme in a lot of the questions we got is all about, you know, emotional regulation. You know, one family shared that, 
you know, every single thing is triggering crying right now. Another shared that doors opening and closing are triggering behaviors. What are some ways to help kids who are dealing with behaviors cope and and self-regulate when they're having these emotional outbursts? And that is the hard one. I'm glad you asked that question. One key thing, and that's a key to a lot of the behaviors that are going on, is trying to figure out what is the root for your loved one. Because what we see is the crying and and we see the tantrums and we see the aggression and the self-injury. But trying to figure out, is that coming from anxiety? Is that coming from not feeling well? Where, where is it coming from? And the way to kind of figure that out, you know, even if you're home and you're not doing it with a professional, is what's happening even before that door slammed? What else is going on with your loved one that, that might be a trigger even before the door? Because oftentimes the thing that seems to be the trigger, the door slam, can just be kind of the, the end result. So let's say if I'm if I'm anxious all day, I'm anxious, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure what you expected me. You know, I didn't rest well because I'm so anxious. And now you slam the door that just tipped over. But it wasn't the door necessarily. It's that I have overwhelming anxiety or I have untreated ADHD or something else. So trying to figure out what's, what's the underlying thing. And then trying to, you know, you can do that from observation. You can do that from talking to your loved one, talking to other ones who've observed your loved one, changing environments. So that's one. And then two, not necessarily becoming upset with the reaction, saying it's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. Let's try to figure out what we can do. And then trying to find some things that might have the opposite effect. What gives your loved one a lot of joy and trying to work that into a schedule, like something to look forward to. You know, maybe it's going outside or getting on a trampoline or doing some water play, figuring out what else they can possibly do. Another theme in some of the questions that were asked, you know, where to get help and how to determine the best course of action because there are behavioral interventions, there are medication options. And, you know, sometimes you'll be working with a doctor who's pushing a medication that doesn't seem to be working. How can parents both get the resources they need and also advocate for trying new courses of action? So I think, you know, a lot is dependent on where in the country or the world people live. So I would say starting with the Tuberous Alliance, Joanne Nakagawa, like she is connected to all of our clinics. And so if you pose a question to her, she sends it out to everybody in the network and tries to find best matches. If at all possible, reaching out to, so there's that's the professional side, like if you're trying to get a professional opinion, but then there are also regional volunteers that are parents as well. So tapping into that network to figure out, okay, for where we live, who have you relied on? Who has been helpful for you? So getting some of that professional feedback, giving some of the parental feedback, and then also like kind of my strategy, my approach is always to start with all non-med things first. So if you're getting a professional opinion, like thinking about all those non-med things, like where's the behavior coming from? It's, it's always my big question. What is the underlying root of it? What are the medical things that we can be doing? And what are the TSC related things that, that we can be doing that might also help out with behavior? Yeah, I think what you were saying about tapping into those regional resources is so important. And, you know, even just talking to someone 
a parent who has gone through what you've gone through is so important. Everyone right now is feeling isolated. And so anything you can do to seek help from others is, is going to make a difference, even in your outlook on the situation. Right. That's absolutely, absolutely correct. Because the, the good news is, is our loved ones do get better. There is a way forward, you know, so just finding out what that path is going to be for you and your family is, is important, but just knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. So parents seeking help often face a number of barriers, whether it's wait list to be seen by a clinic yeah. or insurance issues and justifying the medical need for treatments. How can parents be proactive in addressing behaviors before it becomes a crisis for them? Yeah, that is a wonderful question because oftentimes people seek TAN evaluations and TAN treatment once behaviors have begun. And that's okay too. But ideally, getting a TAN evaluation done even before behaviors is is important. So you have an idea of what to look for. Two, reading. There's a ton of great publications on the TSLiance.org, but one that I particularly like is one that Dina Hook drafted about TSC and educators. So it's, it's directed to educators, but what it does is it explains different aspects of behavior in TSC, how they might manifest and how we might approach them. I think that that manuscript is just as important to parents, families, physicians, as it is to educators. But it's a it's written in a very family-friendly way. So educating yourself with what might happen by getting a screening, by doing reading, and then very importantly, finding out what are your regional resources like. So if the worst were to happen and behaviors were uncontrollable, and let's say you needed inpatient care for your loved one, where would that be? And what's it like? So just knowing what that is and what the process is. And then a step down from that, if you needed outpatient treatment with a behavioral specialist, how many people who have a BCBA, a BCBA is a board certified behavior analyst. I refer to those often for behavioral therapy. How many are in your area and how hard are they to access? And how are they typically funded? For many families, every state has a waiver program. And what the waiver is, is considered like a Medicaid waiver. And typically there are carve-outs for funding for people with special needs. So figuring out what that process is like and whether your loved one qualifies and what the wait list is like. I know in some states that wait list can be as long as 10 years. And so if you have a two-year-old, you may never need it, but it would be good to know that you have a 10-year wait and make the decision, you know, my thought would be to just be on that list just in case you need it when you're approaching middle school. As much as parents can do to prepare ahead of time and the sooner that they can seek intervention, the yes. you know the better outcomes for them and for their kid. So, you know, we've talked about all of the different hats that parents have had to assume now that their kids are home all the time and they're home all the time. How can parents create some space for themselves to cope with their own anxiety and trauma that they're feeling? Absolutely. I think the first thing is recognizing that that's okay. Recognizing that there are 24 hours in a day and you don't necessarily have to spend 23 of them doing things for everyone else and spending an hour asleep. It's okay to take a walk alone. It's okay to have a cup of tea or coffee. It's okay to have a weekend off. You know, I always advise people to reach out to your network, whether it's family, 
friends, the people that you can trust that can maybe help watch your child for, for a little while, or whether if you, even if they want professional help, you know, hiring a caregiver through a waiver service or a state program that provides respite, being comfortable with saying, you know what, I need a little bit of time for myself as well. And, and I always tell parents, sleeping, eating, and bathroom trips are not a break. That's just your, that's, that's, those are your basic things. But actually taking a restful break is okay. It's important. You, it's hard to keep pouring out when you haven't filled your own cup. So, and for some families, they may feel, and it's perfectly okay that they might want some counseling, especially during this time. And just like our clinic is offering telehealth, there are many, many therapists through insurance, not necessarily, you know, people you're paying an arm and a leg to, but through your insurance that are offering telecounseling. But most importantly, just knowing that that's okay, it's acceptable, scheduling it into the day and not feeling guilty about that. Yeah, I I think that's great advice, especially seeking help for yourself if you need it so that you can continue to be a source of, of strength for your kids, it's Absolutely. definitely, definitely something that I think resonates with a lot of parents because I'm sure a lot of them are stressed out right now. Given what you've learned so far, how can parents prepare for the uncertainty, right? We're in the middle of a protracted first wave. There may be a second wave. No one knows what school is going to look like in the fall. What can parents be doing right now in case that we get locked down again. Yeah. So I think for each family, number one is acknowledging that there's a lot that's out of our control. Then two, as a family deciding, okay, what are our options? What's in our control? What are the steps that we're going to take? Having open discussions as a family and including your loved ones to say, hey, mom and dad, we don't have all the answers, but when school starts for us, this is our plan. If School is virtual. This is our plan. But what you guys need to know is that we're going to keep you safe. We're going to make the best decisions we can. We love each other. We're a family. We're in this together. Those are the key things to to focus on as we all face this this uncertainty, you know, and, and not allowing the uncertainty to overwhelm and not allowing the negative aspects to dominate every waking moment. Because I know personally, I've had to take a break from some news. I, I want to remain well-informed and I do, but I don't need to do that eight hours a day. I don't need to get a news alert every hour on the hour. Sometimes I may just want to listen to music or do a little yoga or play with my grand puppy and that's okay. So being able to, to do those things as well. You know, I think it's easy to slip from being informed to being obsessed and yes. as much as you can avoid letting it overwhelm you and giving yourself time to focus on other things that gives you the space you need to just deal with things. And, and the other thing I thought that you just said that was so important is having open and honest conversations with your kids about the situation and not re-emphasizing that you will keep them safe and you will do what's best for them, but that there are some things we don't know yet and we're going to figure them out together. That's right. We'll figure it out together. Well, we really appreciate you, Dr. Gibson, for everything that you continue to do for the families affected by TSC and 
you led a, a really great webinar earlier in the year about dealing with behaviors, and I'm sure you've only gotten more questions since then. So thank you for your time and your dedication and for everything you're doing right now during these uncertain times. Absolutely. It's my absolute pleasure in any way that I can serve. I'm happy to do that. And I will always, always keep reminding everybody that do not lose hope. Even though everything is crazy, do not lose your hope. Keep your faith, you know, take time for yourself and for your families. Have some fun. And like you said, we'll get through it together. My thanks again to Dr. Gibson for her incredible insights and advice on dealing with behaviors during these uncertain times. I'll be sure to share a link to some of our TAND resources, including the webinar Dr. Gibson led all about managing anxiety during COVID-19. For the second half of the podcast, I talked to Rob Moss and Gabrielle Rushing about a new partnership between Seizure Tracker and the TS Alliance and how individuals and families affected by TSC can get involved in our TSC Biosample Repository Project. Here's my conversation with Rob and Gabrielle. So today, to talk about a new partnership between Seizure Tracker and the TS Alliance, we are joined by Rob Moss, who is a co-founder of Seizure Tracker, and Gabrielle Rushing, who is Associate Director of Research at the TS Alliance. Thank you for joining me, you two. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. What a pleasure it is to talk to you again. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Rob. So to kind of give us some background on this new project, Rob, I'm wondering if you could give me just a brief description of what Seizure Tracker is. Sure. So Seizure Tracker was built originally for monitoring our son Evan's seizures, and we quickly realized that it filled a gap for the community. So worked on really making a resource that was usable publicly and pushed it out to the community. And it's really a web, mobile, and voice-controlled seizure diary that allows you to enter event-related information along with the accompanying therapies and lifestyle data that really gives your doctors a much better idea of how maybe therapies are impacting seizure activity, but then also other things that surround having seizures and epilepsy. And you mentioned that you originally built Seizure Tracker to track your son's seizures, but I'm sure as you created this tool and filled this void in that space, you got all sorts of feedback and you've grown and evolved. How has Seizure Tracker changed over the years? Uh, That's a great question. So as I mentioned, we built it for our son, Evan, who has tuberous sclerosis complex and refractory epilepsy. So we had a kind of a limited knowledge base of what the need was, but we had this need of collecting this data and then sharing it with our doctors. In 2007, we pushed the publicly available seizuretracker.com site out to the TS Alliance listserv and immediately started getting all this feedback from the TSC community. And then we found that other epilepsy-related advocacy groups and communities based around advocacy groups started reaching out to us. So as an example, we had never used rescue medication for Evan and launched the site. And right away, people were asking for a tool to be able to record the rescue medications as seizures were happening and then understand what those impacts are. So Seizure Tracker has really been a community-based resource. We have this really nice relationship with our user base that allows us to communicate with them, figure out what the needs are, and then respond to those needs using the technology 
that has been developing over the past 10 years and then leveraging existing technology in new ways. And when did you first build Seizure Tracker? How long has it been collecting data? So we launched Seizure Tracker publicly in late 2007. So, wow, going on almost 13 years of collecting data. And as you can imagine, there's been people that have been using Seizure Tracker for all 13 of those years. So we have what now is the largest database of patient-reported seizure activity in the world. And in your rough estimate, how many events have been tracked in Seizure Tracker? Oh, that's a good question. So the use has been growing exponentially over the past few years, but I think it was 2017 or 18 that we crossed over a million seizure events logged in the database, and now we're almost at 3 million seizures. So three years later, we've we've almost tripled the amount of seizures that are collected by patients in the database. So as you said, you have one of the largest databases of these seizure events. How has the data that you've gathered in Seizure Tracker been used for research purposes? Again, another really interesting question. The mission of Seizure Tracker was actually originally to boost the communication between doctors and patients to help with clinical care. And early on, we were noticing how valuable the data was for understanding epilepsy as a whole in the community, and especially subgroups like in tuberous sclerosis complex. And we'd go to these professional conferences wanting to talk to doctors about the usefulness of this in clinical care, but then we'd be approached by researchers as well, asking for access to the data. So there was this dichotomy of really being afraid of losing user confidence by sharing data in the research community, but then understanding how powerful the use could be. So it was around 2014, we put a survey out to our user base asking what their interest was in participating in research. And over 95% of them said they wanted us to share their data with researchers if it was de-identified and unlinked. So meaning that we couldn't re-identify them from the exports that we created and neither could the researcher. So we took that 95% acknowledgement of using the data for research as a mandate to really start creating tools to help the research community get access to this data in a way that respected our users' privacy. So we created first a tool that allows us to export de-identified and unlinked population exports, and we were able to manage that through National Institutes of Health to do that responsibly, and we started exporting that data and sending it out to institutional-based researchers. On top of that, we built what now is called the Data Share Program. It allows other organizations and institutions to link directly to our database and with the idea of joining and merging databases. So the Data Share Program is really designed to let Seizure Tracker users initiate those relationships and manage those relationships and share their data any way they want. So that's been a really effective tool in combining data sets as well. So to get back to your question, we've been really excited about the work that institutional-based researchers have been doing based on those population exports. A lot of that is focused on the natural history of epilepsy, clinical trial optimization, so lowering the cost and easing the burden of patients for participation, seizure cycling, and risk forecasting has been really interesting to look at. Cluster identification, so when seizures actually tend to happen in big grouping, we've been able to explore that idea and then be able to identify and define personalized clusters for people using their seizure diary. Some of the more prominent data share partnership we've done have been with Cure. They're 
Epilepsy Genetics Initiative. So we joined their registry, looking at genetic screenings and then joining seizure tracker data as outcome data, and then understanding the differences between the outcome data and how genetics has an impact on seizure activity. This year, really excitingly, we partnered with Neuropace, which is an intracranial responsive neurostimulator, meaning that you can put a device inside the skull, monitor EEG readings, and then respond to those EEG readings and hopefully stop seizures. So we partnered with Neuropace to collect data through Seizure Tracker. So patients actually could loop their data in with the Neuropace data and present that in the clinical platform. And most excitingly, we just partnered with the TS Alliance using the Data Share Partnership to combine that with the Natural History Database and the Biosample Repository. What an excellent segue. Thank you for that. So, Gabrielle, you joined the TS Alliance team at the end of last year in part to help us expand our efforts in those two projects, the Natural History Database and the Biosample Repository. Can you first give us a little bit of information about what those two projects are? Sure. So the Natural History Database essentially captures clinical data from people affected by TSC over their lifetime. And we track the impact of the disease by entering clinical information about TSC manifestations, such as seizures, tumors, lab results, and genetic. And right now we have about um, a little over 2,000 people with TSC that are enrolled in this project. And originally we were only able to enroll across 18 clinic sites that were part of the project. But now the TS Alliance may enroll people remotely via the phone, which is pretty exciting. And tied with those clinical data, our biosample repository stores different samples such as blood, tissue from brain or kidney surgeries, and DNA. And we use those biosamples to give them to researchers so that they answer questions about TSE. So the samples are collected to that clinical information and they're used to projects that may discover different biomarkers from TSC or explain why TSC is so different from person to person. And we recently expanded this project to include a mobile phlebotomy initiative. And what this means essentially is that we can send someone who is licensed and trained to draw blood to a patient's home to collect a blood sample from anywhere within the United States. So it's a pretty exciting advancement. That is very exciting. So you began to touch on this a little bit, but how do these tools work together to help expand our understanding of the disease and why it's so different person to person? Yeah. And so since you mentioned TSC affects individuals so differently, so it's very important to collect as much information as possible so we can try and establish important connections across the population of people who are affected by TSC and just learn more to help accelerate finding better treatment options. So some of these research entities may help to identify additional targets that we can use for drug development, or we could use these to find biomarkers that could enable preventative interventions, or even hopefully down the line, help predict an individual's likelihood of responding to a specific drug. So Gabrielle, how has the collection of biosamples moved research forward? Do you have a tangible example of an outcome that has come from having these biosamples available? Yeah. So one example is a partner company that originally was studying a repurposed drug for potential use TSC, and they used our biosamples and found a potential biomarker, and now they are in an exploratory clinical trial. So Gabrielle, how do you see the natural history database and biosample repository continuing to evolve and grow in the future? Yeah, so I hope that one day in the future we can do analysis on all samples as a whole, so maybe like whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing, that way we have the same type of data collected across the board, as well as I'm really interested in adding different patient reported outcomes into the database 
database, potentially through a patient portal, and specifically with a focus on TAN, or TSC Neuropsychiatric Associated Disorders. And that's sort of the last frontier in TSC, as we don't know a lot about it, and it's an umbrella term that encompasses so many different behavioral problems. I'm hoping that through a patient portal or some type of uh, patient-initiated reporting that can better understand the TAND phenotypes and how that correlates with the rest of this information that we're collecting. Yeah, TAND is such a pervasive issue that we're still grappling to understand. So enabling that sort of patient-reported outcomes can really help perhaps unlock some of those mysteries on why people are experiencing these different behaviors. And that would be really exciting for the community as a whole. So now jumping into this new partnership, how are Seizure Tracker and the TS Alliance going to work together with these two projects? Yeah, so this partnership is exciting because we are both very patient-centered organizations, and we think this helps to close the patient, clinician, and research loop, so to speak. So it broadens our reach so that participants in one project can learn about and have access to participating in other projects. And we can apply what we learn about epilepsy and whether it is similar or different across the overall community, and then compare that with any research that's done on the connected biosamples for biomarkers or maybe clinical information, and then compare it back to seizure data that's recorded within Seizure Tracker. If I can comment there too, Dan, I think it's really impressive the direction that the TS Alliance has taken in empowering people to participate in these projects. So originally, the Natural History Database was set up to collect data exclusively through the clinics, which is super important in this type of research. But what the new direction has gone to enable us as patients to share our data, whether it be into the Natural History Database or our bio samples or our seizure tracker data, we as patients can take the initiative and work directly with the TS Alliance to share that data where that wasn't the case before. And the TS Alliance has worked hard, it seems, to really enable that interaction and that direct interaction with the community. And we really need to give praise to Gabrielle for the work she's done in that effort. Thank you so much, Rob. And I think our partnership with Seizure Tracker being an easy-to-use application, as well as our ability to send people remotely now for the Natural History Database, and as well as send someone to the participant's home to collect a blood sample, it's just expanding our reach and allowing more people that are affected by TSE the opportunity to pay in research that they otherwise might not have been made in. So you've kind of already talked about it a little bit, but I'd, I'd love to hear more about what insights we can hope to glean by, as you said, closing this loop and connecting this data. So I think we're at a really interesting turning point in how we understand issues surrounding different medical disorders. I think the way that we're collecting data, analyzing data, and sharing data between different organizations really changes the way that we can explore existing research ideas, but then coming up with new ideas that had never been accessible before. So when we look at what kind of research has been going on in seizure trackers, so if we think about seizure cycling or seizure prediction, what we really can do is then add in other aspects of data collection done by other organizations and look specifically more in depth at subgroups and say, well, if we're looking at seizure cycling and we have these specific genetic screens done, we can really look at what would have been called personalized medicine. So understanding how do you fit in specific subgroups 
subgroup. How do you look different or the same than other people in your community? And what successes in treatment and clinical care have worked better for those subgroups? So combining the data together allows us to look at how we compare within subpopulations and then take that subpopulation and compare it to a larger population. So while I'm not answering your question about specifics on what we can look at, the sky's the limit here at this point. We're going to be able to take the data, combine it together, use different analysis tools to find patterns and relationships, and then develop new questions. So I really think we're at a turning point of how we look at the way therapy is judged, developed, and implemented in the medical community as a whole. And civic to TS, I think we can really answer some really interesting questions. And something unique that I think that's additive about this partnership is, you know, our natural history database looking rather retrospectively to medical records and clinic visits where parents or patients themselves are telling their doctor about past events. And sometimes it's hard to recollect what happened or what was a trigger. And something that Seizure Tracker provides is the patient reported outcome almost in real time to the TS Alliance. So we have a record of what event occurred when in, in a sequence of events, if a medication was used, provides a much finer level of detail that may be important for researchers looking at correlation genetic cures or medication cures or type cures. So I think we gain a lot more detail here that will be really relevant for analyzing some important questions. Epilepsy is such a pervasive issue in the TSC community. And, and Rob, as you were saying about subsets, people with TSC who have seizures is a subset. And within that subset, there's so much diversity in the types of seizures and the triggers. And so beginning to get this data to drill down even farther, I think, could really open the door to understanding what sorts of options are out there for people who are struggling with seizures. Yeah. And I think so as a community, it's interesting because we think about research as and, and participating re- research in something that we think will help future generations and our contributions might not be necessarily applicable now. But I think as we think about learning health systems and the way that the loops between clinicians, researchers, and patients are forming to share this data, we can really make an input or we can understand the implications of our therapy decision faster. We can share that information with researchers and clinicians faster and ideally create that loop that comes back and provides different therapy decisions that are validated through this data exchange process. So ideally, what we'd be thinking about research and participating in these data share projects as a way to enable our researchers to get therapy changes and advice to our clinicians much faster and actually hopefully participate in research that will impact us directly. And I think the TS Alliance and the TSC community have experienced that with past therapies that have come to market at a much more rapid pace. But combining this data is really going to open the door for more and a better understanding of how these things actually work together. So you both have kind of talked about how work that the TS Alliance has done recently has really empowered more people to get involved in research. You know, you don't have to go to a natural history database site in order to participate. You can do consenting remotely and you can even have a mobile phlebotomist come to your house to collect your biosamples. Gabrielle, can you tell me a little bit more about what that consenting looks like and how people can get started on that process? Yeah, so the first way to get involved is to email me 
me at grushing at tsalliance.org. And from that email, I will schedule a phone call with a potential participant or guardian. And that phone call should only take about 20 to 30 minutes. And I can consent you on the phone right then and there if you are still interested in participating. It will require you to sign a document that I email to you. But right after that, I submit a request to our mobile phlebotomy company and they will call you to schedule an appointment at a time and date that's needed to come to the participant home and collect that blood sample. And I also will send a little email link where it will click through where people can connect their seizure tracker data. If they aren't already a seizure tracker user, conveniently it will pop up with the ability to create a seizure tracker account and start using that data. And of course, if they aren't already in our natural history database or are not seen at a TSC clinic, we will need to get medical records that have information on the TS symptoms. So we do request that those medical records are either fact to us or mailed to us and enter that data. And all those costs will be covered. So you don't have any additional clinic appointments necessary, no insurance bills. The TS Alliance will cover the cost of sending those medical records to us. And as far as follow-up after the initiation of project, we do ask that people will submit an annual blood sample. It's not required, but as TSC symptoms do change over time and as medications change, it would be great to get a blood sample one per year. And any medical record update for any new tests or imaging or things like that, that would be relevant and important for research. So all in all, the whole process shouldn't take more than 30 to 45 minutes on the back end. And the mobile phlebotomy appointment takes about 20 minutes. So a little over an hour of your time to commit to research. And we try to make it as easy as possible. If you're interested in learning more about any of these projects, you can always visit the TS Alliance website. And on that page, there's an interest form where you can provide your information right on the top of the page and I will be in touch shortly after that form. And Rob, you've kind of touched on this, but how does Seizure Tracker benefit from this type of partnership? Seizure Tracker really benefits, I think, with these partnerships and relationships and growing the Seizure Tracker community, but building on the database and making it more powerful. I think we can really come together as organizations to better understand epilepsy. So we as Seizure Tracker benefit as a community, but the whole community benefits from the data that you collect and store and share. One of our most exciting projects now is, is something that's been a partnership with multiple advocacy organizations. So we as a family realized that epilepsy is not just about seizures and quality of life is determined not only by seizure activity, but a bunch of other measurements. So we've reached out to advocacy groups, to community members, and to partnering institutions and clinicians and really tried to figure out what we think a good measurement scale is for understanding the impacts of therapies and seizures on people living with epilepsy. So we're about to put out as a part of our It's Not Just Seizures effort a core outcome set that's been developed through focus groups of community members really identifying what's important to them and what impacts them outside of just seizures. We'll develop that core outcome set which will ultimately lead to a quality of life measurement tool that will be implemented in Seizure Tracker and other diary systems that will not only collect the data, it'll create data visualizations of that data longitudinally and allow patients to share that information with their care provider. So as part of this partnership, Rob, you've created a page on Seizure Tracker that's all about TSC specifically. Can you talk a little bit about this new resource you created? Yeah, thanks, Dan. So it was really interesting as we started talking about this new collaboration with the TS Alliance, really understanding how we could complement 
implement the information that the TS Alliance provides on seizures and epilepsy within TSC and what we had as resources on Seizure Tracker. So together we built a really cool resource that lives within our Seizure Success in You portal on SeizureTracker.com that uses dynamic data from Seizure Tracker to present data visualizations of the prevalence of seizure activity by seizure type and medications that are used. And then it allows you to kind of see how you fit into the epilepsy community and TSC community as a whole. So you can access that resource by going to seizuretracker.com. There's a resource tab in the upper left corner and clicking on seizure success in you, and you'll be able to directly get to the TSC seizure-related information page on seizuretracker.com. Well, this is a really exciting partnership. I know we at the TS Alliance are excited, and Rob, we're very excited to be working with you. I wonder if each of you could give like your very short pitch of why people should get involved. I'm going to loop back to some of what Gabrielle said in the idea that this is really a loop and the patients need to be included in that loop. When you think about research, it really been between clinicians and researchers and the patients were peripherally involved. We're now come to the point where patients really need to be involved in the process from beginning to end. And then this idea of a learning health system where it's very circular, the patients play one of the biggest roles in collecting the information and in understanding what's important to clinical care. It's really, really important. And the tools are enabling us to do this, but getting those patients in the loop and keeping them in the loop will really change the way we treat and care for people living with epilepsy. And I will bounce off that to say that patient representation is probably the most important reason to participate in this. So we have patient reported outcomes of things that are happening in real time. The expansion to allow remote mobile phlebotomy really allows us to broaden the representation within our database. And of course, the more data we do have, the better correlations we can make and the better studies designed help everyone. So it's really an all hands on deck efforts to participate in this for a short amount of your time. The amount of research and knowledge we gain is huge. Well, I appreciate both of you taking time to talk to me today and sharing about this exciting partnership. Thanks, Dan, for letting us talk about these projects and the opportunities available to our community. Yeah, thanks, Dan. This has been an amazing conversation and just what the TS Alliance is doing is really going to change the way we think about epilepsy. My thanks again to Rob and Gabrielle for sharing information about this exciting new partnership and for sharing how individuals can help shape TSC research and answer some of those unanswered questions that still exist. Next month, I'll be talking to two of our education parent mentors about how parents should approach the decision of whether or not to send their kids back to school and what rights parents have when making that decision. In the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe, and if you need support, please don't hesitate to reach out to the TS Alliance at any time. You can reach us at 800-225-6872 or send us an email at info at See you next time. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash TSC Now. Thanks for listening.